Welcome to a brand new episode of The Influential Executive. In today's episode, we speak about what's possibly the most important skill for every leader. Because being a leader is not only about having vision and inspiring others. It is also about getting things done, doing the work, well, the actual implementation. The bad news is nobody is born with the skill of getting things done. And there's good news too. Everybody can learn it. When you say getting things done, we say David Allen. David's the author of Getting Things Done and he's licensed trainers all over the world. His book was first published in 2001 and today over 2 million people worldwide learned the art of stress-free productivity. It took David 25 years and dozens of different jobs in different industries to figure out the principles that he teaches. And by now, he's changed the lives of countless CEOs and executives by helping them get organized so that they can use their mind to have ideas, not hold them. We were specifically excited about this interview because David's experience confirms our finding that the skill of being effective can turn any business around. Our conversation today touches upon the foundation on which our coaching and consulting organization Earn More Work Less is built. We managed to transform stressed managers into influential leaders because we apply the same principles as David does. So get ready for another value-packed conversation about the skills and habits that help you get more done with minimum effort. We are here today with David Allen, the writer, the author of Getting Things Done. David, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, sure. We're very excited about interviewing you. You write about the art of stress-free productivity. Isn't that the most important skill that any human being should learn? Well, you know, I, I tend to shy away from the shoulds. You know, my point of view was that probably your most productive state is when you have a clear head and you're present with whatever you're doing. So you can put your full attention on whatever that is, whether that's, it allows you to take a better nap, paint a better picture, cook better spaghetti, you know, have difficult conversations, you know, as you need to. So it just makes everything easier and better. So depends on how much, how important easier and better is to you. Some people are addicted to working hard. So, you know, this, my stuff is not for them. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. And your work has had a lot of impact on us. We are crazy about productivity. We see productivity as having the ability to create something where the first was nothing. So that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And so getting things done is the number one productivity methodology in the world, we may say. What we want to do with this interview is not only get into the details of how getting things done works and what it means for people. Of course, all of that is interesting. We're also very much interested in the person behind getting things done. So the personal story that led up to these insights and helping millions of people in the world improve their productivity. And Lenka, you had a wonderful question prepared about David's story. Well, most importantly, I wanted to ask you, we are here in Amsterdam, but you're originally from United States, if I'm right. Who brought you to the Netherlands? Well, my wife and I wanted a lifestyle change. This seemed time to do that. We saw people a little older than us that were looking a little more settled than we wanted to be. We don't have kids. And my work was becoming more and more virtual, so it really didn't matter where we lived. And so we were attracted to moving to Europe. Could have been anywhere as long as I'm near an airport, but we'd been to Amsterdam two or three times and had fallen in love with the city. It's cheaper than London, it's warmer than Stockholm, and it's more the center of the world than almost anywhere else you could be. I mean, as you guys know, it's, you can get from here to almost anywhere you know, pretty easily. I and mean, we love Kyoto too, and, but that's not exactly the center of the world you know, from here. And we just fall in love with the city. So we've been here over four years and still in love with it. The lifestyle, quality of life, uh, ease and practicality of, of living here. 
and it's becoming you know quite an interesting um, high tech capital now you know startup capital and so forth it's kind of moved from East London to Berlin to now Amsterdam you know it's pretty pretty hot stuff and and there's there's a pop-up store new every day so there's always something going on there's always something new and it's quite accessible you know where where we live I'm a 15 or 20 minute bike ride from anywhere that matters in Amsterdam you know so anyway all of those all of those factors come together and as you know it's an eye candy city so you know it's gorgeous and we love the people we love the Dutch we love the country we love the culture and did That's you amazing. see any cultural differences between American culture and Dutch culture oh I'm sure there are plenty that you could put your finger on that would that would be somewhat somewhat different but for the most part you know we're all human beings we all have kind of the same issues and the same games and the same things that, that, that bother. Certainly in my work, there's no bias for the culture or age or, or uh, company or level or uh, any of that because, you know, I've, I do this work all around the world and by the time people are interested in, you know, productivity themselves and improving that, there's more in common with people in our seminars that we coach around the world than between you and your next door neighbor or your cousin. You know, so there's a there's a common denominator that's quite global now, in terms of at least mid to senior level professionals. Anyway, that that's been who I've mostly been dealing with. But um, you know, I'm from we moved here from from Santa Barbara in California, and California is sort of, and we love San Francisco, and I call Amsterdam as the San Francisco of Europe, but it's like the Republic of San Francisco, it's the Republic of Amsterdam too. So it it is quite its own city state that doesn't necessarily, you know translate all over the country. Uh, so there's something quite unique about that. But otherwise, uh, no, that it, it's, it's very similar culture in many, in many, many ways. More ways than any differences. In and now I have always lots of questions, or lots of questions. I'm always interested in who were you when you were really young, when you were eight years old or 10 years old. 10 years old. How would you describe yourself as an eight or 10 years old child? See, um, let's see, eight and ten. Well, I grew up in Louisiana, in the south of the, in the in the U.S. And eight and ten, I was always a good student. Um, I tended to find out what the teachers wanted, so that they would give me good grades. Because my mother had been a teacher, as well as I had you know several relatives that were teachers, so I knew sort of the teaching culture. And I'm just as lazy as I'm the laziest guy you ever met. So I just, just but I discovered that if you make a really good impression the first four weeks then they think you're smart, and so they, they give you smart grades the whole rest of the year. And you, and you don't have to work nearly as hard. So, um, you know, I was a, a nice kid and got along with everybody, and, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was pretty much it. Rode my bike to school. And... How did you spend your spare time, the time that was yours, free to do whatever you could? Oh, I bounced on a pogo stick. I loved doing that, and I loved to explore you know, the bayous and let's explore the ditches and go play. And uh, I love to fly kites um, and I played music. I was, I was studied piano from the time I was five until I was 11 or 12. So I played classical music on the piano. So I was doing that. And then eh, when I was 11, uh, my mother, because I had memorized some, some records and, and sort of impressed everybody that I had memorized Bugs Bunny records and came in and per performed. She knew that I, there was a sort of an actor that lived inside of me. And so she, for my birthday, my 10th birthday, 11th birthday, 10th birthday, she gave me acting lessons at the local college. So I took acting lessons and it turned out that uh, I wound up getting a leading role in The King and I actually that the, the, that the college was putting on and it was quite a professional thing. So I became sort of the child actor in, in, the, oh. in, in the city that I was living in. So I had wow. two or three different roles when I was 11, 12, 13. So that gave me a lot of experience you know, on stage and you know, fabulous, fabulous lifestyle then. And my mom gave me a lot of freedom to just go you know, hang out and spend, spend, spend time at the theater, go to cast parties and things like that. That is fantastic. And what, what did you study? Ooh, what did I study? Well, I didn't really see in the U.S., you know, you don't really start specializing in terms of what you study until uh, you really go to college. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, maybe a little bit, but it's not quite like the European system where you have yeah. to kind of pick a track, you know, a little earlier than, than we did. Uh, so I was mo mostly interested. Oh, one thing that happened was I, I, I 
we had a German exchange student in our high school. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool to be an exchange student. So there's a program called the American Field Service, which was U.S.-based. And basically, for the most part, they sent American kids in the summer to live with a family anywhere else in the world just for the summer. Because uh, there weren't a lot of international families that were willing, willing to take a, whole, a kid for a whole year. Uh, but they, they were a few. So I signed up. I said, what the heck? Let me just go see if I can do this. So I, long story short, I wound up being chosen to be able to uh, live in Switzerland. So I lived in Zurich for a year with a Swiss family. You know, from, from, that was, uh, actually, it was the year when Kennedy was shot, 1963-64. I remember exactly when and how that happened. Anyway, so that, was, that also broadened my horizons a bunch, you know, because I, I went to Real Gymnasium Zürichberg, which is you know, a block away from the Kunsthaus in Zurich, where I go down and look at Monet's water lilies. And you know, I got enthralled by culture and you know, growing up in Louisiana, which there really wasn't a whole lot of that. So I, that was... Completely different world. Completely different world, yeah. And I bored people to tears with all, of the, all the pictures of mountains that I took. <laughs> <laughs> and I came back and said, look at that, there's another mountain. Oh my God, there's another mountain. And anyway, the, that was a great experience, obviously. And uh, it taught me how to say my ch's. That's so that I can speak a little bit of the, the ch's in, in Dutch because of this. I, I learned to speak Swiss German at least pretty well, you know, while I was there. So anyway, so that was a great experience, you know, for me. So then what did I study? I, I thought I was going to be interested maybe in law or whatever. And then... I got more interested after that, after that uh, experience of just cultural liberal arts, you know, art, culture, philosophy, so forth. So I started out as a philosophy major in college, got bored with that because the philosophers wound up proving their original hypothesis with their original hypothesis. I thought, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What was more interesting was the philosophers themselves and why they thought they started with that hypothesis. And I had a great... Uh, mentor and teacher, academic advisor in college. His specialty was intellectual history, history of thought, history of culture. And he got me turned on to that. And I also went to a liberal arts college, small one, uh, where we kind of designed a lot of our own education and had a lot of freedom to do that. And um, there was a lot of focus on, okay, let's take the Baroque period and see how Art was similar to math, was similar to philosophy, was similar to science, was similar during, during that time. And we didn't use the word back then, but I was beginning to understand paradigms and how paradigms affected perception and performance. I've always been fascinated by how invisible things you know, affect the visible world that we're in and how we're doing that. So I've, that, that's been fascinating since I was a kid, tiny. So my first job was being a magician at age five. You know, I did magic tricks on the sidewalk for five cents. So I always thought, there's something out there. We could figure out how the magic of the world works. Then I could still be as lazy as I wanted to be, and you could make things move without having to go work at making things move. I could just think it moved, and it moved. I thought, wow, wow, that'd be really cool. So years later, as you know, all that work in visualization and affirmations and imagery and the power of that became a core element to both my own life and how I structured my life and created what I wanted, but then also how to build that into uh, the best practices in terms of you know, how people get stuff done. Wow, this only the past few minutes has have opened up the doors to like 10 more questions I'd like to ask. Go ahead. <laughs> I love what you said about the material versus the immaterial world. I think that much of the pain and suffering in today's world comes from the fact that people simply overlook the immaterial world. And so when you don't have a complete picture, you don't have complete information to base decisions on. Uh, one key word that you said right there is the word paradigm. Can you give us your definition of what is a paradigm? It's just a, a, a belief system that you, that you perceive your world through. You know, it's the lens through which you see reality or the, how you determine reality. See, the world is fine. You know, if you haven't noticed, it's not overwhelmed. It's not confused, right? It's only how we are engaged with it that creates confusion or overwhelm. So again, a lot of my methodology, what I uncovered is how do I appropriately engage with this world so it doesn't take any more energy than it deserves? And so, you know, your paradigm has an awful lot to do with what you, what you notice. And one of the things that 
you know, I discovered and then began to experiment with was something called the reticular formation in your head. 1959 article in the Scientific American Journal, the discovery of the reticular formation. And that's basically the thing that, that causes you to notice anything in the world. You know, the scientists kind of got into that. They were curious why parents could sleep through loud music and trucks rolling by. But if the baby cries a special cry, somebody hears it and wakes up. How does that happen? It must mean that you, even when you're unconscious, that you have radar scan scanning for patterns that are meaningful to you. And it'll actually wake you up when, you, when that pattern matches that. And if you start to understand that, it's really, in a sense, quite just a mechanical process. If, if I said, focus on red, look around the room and find red, right? You'll see it. But what happened was your unconscious saw it first and then made you conscious of it. If I said, close your eyes and now think of all the blue in the room, you go, what? Where's what blue? But the blue was here when you were focused on red. So all you have to do is shift your focus and it automatically changes your perceptive filters. Uh, if you change your whole belief system about yourself, I'm a good person, I, you know, I'm, I'm highly productive, I, I, you know, I, I see the beauty in the world, I'm, you know, whatever those kind of personal affirmations or self-image pictures are that you really identify with, and that's what you start to see. So, you know, you can have all kinds of people in the same room, they're going to see a lot of different things and notice a lot of different things, and those all have to do with whatever's the set of patterns that you've built in. You can change your pattern instantly by changing red, but if you, until you identify with red, you have to actually work at focusing on it in order to see it. But if I am just a red person and I live red, I can't help but see red. I'll see it everywhere. So, you know, I'm sure you folks will see things about productivity when you walk into a room. You know, IT people notice what software is going on and what kind of hardware is going on. You know, uh, you out shopping for a bike, you notice bikes everywhere, you know. So... That is fascinating, and, and understanding how this mechanism works in your mind, it opens up the door to developing a set of practices, habits, routines, so that you set yourself up to make optimal use of that. Sure. Well, a whole lot of the getting things done system is about creating maps, creating something out in front of you that you can look at. You know, if you do the weekly review, meaning you've got 45 projects, and once a week you look at each one of them, you don't look at them and go, oh God, that's terrible, I don't know how to do that. You look at them, you look at them and you see them finished. Then that lets you see how to finish them. Because you don't see how to do stuff until you see yourself doing it. So a whole lot of the system is, well, what do I put in front of the door? If you wanted to make sure you remembered to take something in the morning, stick it in front of the door. So this is just putting stuff in front of the door of your mind, not just the door of your house. Just like looking at your calendar. You're putting in a, oh, okay, now I, I'm starting to see how to get here and there and to do that. So all these things, to externalizing all of your commitments and clarifying what they are and then putting those key um, current and accurate maps essentially out in front of your face at the right time allows you to see how to do it. And it allows you to get it done. Because the two elements of getting things done is, first of all, what does done mean? And then secondly, what does doing look like and where does it happen? But interestingly, I've, I've, I've been, you know, I was curious for many years why it was so difficult for people to catch both the outcome and action aspects of something. Because if you look at most people's to-do lists, they don't have either one. Most to-do lists are incomplete lists of unclear things. You'll see things, yeah, you'll see things like mom, oh good, you'll see bank, you know, vacation, you know, teeth, great. What? So I, I'm glad you caught something that's got your attention. What, it, what about mom? That's good historical data, but you know, what, what? Well, her birthday's coming. Well, great, what are you going to do about her birthday? I don't know I'm going to do my birthday. So there's still lack of decision making about stuff that people have even captured. And so the, you know, the second step of getting things done is the clarification process. First one is to identify, okay, mom, I got some attention on birthday. You know, bank, I got some attention. Great. So now you've got a piece of raw data, but then you need to clarify that so you can organize the results. So to, what's the outcome of mom? Oh, I guess we're going to give her a birthday party. Fabulous. Now you got a project. What's the next step? Oh, I guess I should call my sister, see what she thinks. Great, now you have an outcome and an action. But I always often wondered why it's so difficult for people to build that as that cognitive uh, muscle as a habit. Turns out that those are from two different places in your brain. The visionary part sees the outcome. It's the execution part is the limbic thing that, that's your kind of survival mechanism. And it's the one that executes. 
So those are actually, it, it requires two different parts of, of the cognitive process to come up with both the outcome, what's the project, and the next action. But we know those are the zeros and ones of productivity. What's the outcome? What are we trying to accomplish? And what's the next step? Or how do we allocate or reallocate our resources to make that happen instead of something else? That's really all it is. But, that, but you're not born doing that. You guys didn't hop out of your mom and go, hey, mom, exactly what are we trying to accomplish and what's the next step? You know, is that yours or mine? Eh, no, no, I wish is, I had <laughs> asked the question. <laughs> no, this is learned behavior, and you can do it or not do it. And what's been kind of surprising, of course, if this were easy, I'd have to find another job. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And, um, People wouldn't uh, need to be trained and taught you know, what the process is. Peter Drucker described it really well in The Effective Executive. He described that being effective is a skill that every knowledge worker requires in order to get things done. Just having knowledge is useless if you don't succeed in creating things with it, being effective, achieving your goals. And he says, the bad news is that nobody is born with a skill. The good news is that everybody can learn it. Yeah, that's right. Um, we recently spoke to Marshall Goldsmith. And he asked us to pass on his regards. <laughs> he said that you had a major impact on improving the quality of his life. Yeah, I coached Marshall. God, it must have been over 20 years ago. Yeah, we've been friends since. Good guy. <laughs> What is it that you managed to give him that made so much difference to his life? I don't know. I have no idea you know, how much of it stuck and what he did. But you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to go, well, okay, let me... Let me get the habit of getting things out of my head, the habit of making next action decisions when things show up instead of when they blow up, and having some sort of an external brain organization system that's keeping track of what you need to be reminded of and remember, as opposed to just your calendar. So it's simply building all of that. So I don't know how much of that stuck. I'm sure some of it did, at least the approach did. Yeah. How did you call it? An external brain organization system. Well, the external brain just says, I need to park things out of my, your head's a shitty office. It's just, it's awful. <laughs> it is. And most I'm, people, I'm hearing great one-liners here. Oh, and most people are keeping a whole lot of stuff in their head and trying to, make, trying to manage it that way. But we know now, based on new cognitive research, that the number of, your brain did not evolve to remember, remind, prioritize, or manage relationships between more than four things. That's it. As soon as you have a fifth or a sixth or a seventh thing that you're trying to keep in the office in your head, you'll be driven by latest and loudest, period. There's no, and that's just how your brain evolved. Your brain evolved to do some very cool things to keep you alive, you know, in the jungle or on the desert or in the savanna. It learned, it's, you're doing it right now, which is using long-term history and pattern recognition. Oh, those are curtains, that's a worker, that's a camera, that's an apple, that's a guy. And as opposed to, wow, these are just vibrations of light and sound. You're actually you know, using the long-term history of pattern recognition in the present, right? And you're doing that right now, and yet you go to the store for lemons and you come back with six things and no lemons. You know, what happened? Well, you tried to use this to remember, remind, and it sucks. It doesn't do that very well. So anybody listening or watching this who's got a calendar or a diary or a schedule is already demonstrating that their head can't do it. And now this external brain information system is just an extension of the calendar. It is storing all this other information that you want to remember, that you need to achieve your goals, just in a safe place where you know you won't forget it. Yeah. And the cool thing about that is it sounds like such a simple and mechanical you know, process. Uh, but the cool thing is, is what it then frees you up to do. Once you don't have to remember and remind, it frees your mind to do what it does well, which is make intuitive choices off your options. But don't give it the job of trying to remember what your options are. You know, you can look at the 12 errands you need to run and make a good intelligent choice about which one to do. But if you're trying to go, but if you go out because there's two things you need and I think I've got some more errands to run but I can't remember what they are, you're screwed. You know, so get them out of your head. Get, and then doesn't mean you have to do everything you write down. A lot of people misunderstand this. You know, that most people have between 30 and 100 projects and most people have over 150 to 200 next actions on the moving parts of their commitments out there. If you actually get that whole inventory, that's probably not going to get much smaller ever. So it's not about going and doing all those things. It's about keeping track of all the stuff you're not doing and making that okay. 
But you can only feel good about what you're not doing when you know what you're not doing. Most people don't have a clue. <laughs> so how long does it take one to download all the knowledge on a piece of paper or someone on a computer? It depends on you know how busy your life is and, and how long you've been doing what you've been doing. Uh, where a lot of stuff has accumulated. In general, and I've spent thousands of hours, as have many of our staff, working one-on-one -on -one with, you know, with people to implement this at their desk. And generally, it takes one to six hours for somebody to unload all the stuff that has their attention. That also includes going through all the desk drawers and oh, finding, oh God, oh, I need, oh yeah, oh geez, I need, Both oh, oh that reminds me. I need, you know, so, you know, all the things, all the triggers that, you know, are, that would remind you, because very few people can remember consciously all the commitments that they've got, all the, all the things they know would, could, should, need to be changed better, make a decision about. So if you're really going to do it, I've had it take up to 16 hours for a guy, and finally I just told him, well, you get the idea, you know, what this is like, because he just had stuff everywhere. Uh, uh, but anyway, so that's a typical amount. Um, a lot of people in half an hour or an hour can get a whole lot out of your head. When we work with people one-on-one, -on -one, usually if we have the opportunity to do it, we'll have a, st a stack of, of just printer paper. Uh, you know, A4 size or letter size, whatever, wherever you are. And then everything that they write down, I need cat food on one piece of paper, put it there in the basket. Oh, I need uh, the research and hiring of VP of marketing, write that down, put it on. I need a life, right? we write that down, put it on a piece of paper. We get it all. And then all those things are separate particles that then we can now walk people to the next stage to go through them one at a time and have them make clear decisions about outcome and action, if there is any. And that's, that makes it easier for them to do it as opposed to just writing it on a list. You can write it on a list, but then people skip around and still avoid you know, making those decisions about a whole lot of stuff. And what is the story behind Getting Things Done? Because you published your first book, uh, the first edition of Getting Things Done in 2001. Mm -hmm. What is the story behind it? When did you start with this? Um, well, it was kind of on a someday maybe list for several years that I thought at some point it'd probably be a good idea to write a book about all this. Uh, but I was just doing the work. You know, I just spent literally thousands of hours one-on-one -on -one with executives and hundreds of thousands of people going through trainings in the corporate world that we set up and we're doing public trainings as well. So I was doing this work a lot. And, but as I say, it took me 20 years to figure out what I'd figured out and that it was unique and nobody else seemed to have done it. And that's when I said, I guess I better write the manual in case I get run over by a bus. You know, I figured somebody would figure it out at some point because it, it really is the truth about how this stuff works. So I said, well, I'll write it down. And I had, you know, we, I'd bought out a couple of partners and we'd sort of restructured the business, kind of shrunk it back to just me and Catherine. And then I said, okay, what do I do with all of this? Because by that time I had a good bit of a reputation and I had, uh, there'd been some press in the US, you know, kind of written about me um, and my work. And so we just brought together about eight or 10 kind of good friends that were business advisors and had them rake me over the coals and say, okay, David, what, what do I do with this? And of course they said, write a best-selling business book. And I go, oh my God, how do I do, I do? Okay, okay, okay. So that was about 90, 96, 97. And that's when I pulled the trigger and moved it from my someday maybe list to an active project list called Publish Book. And then it took four years from the time I pulled the trigger to start that project to actually get that book out. It took a year to just figure out how to, how to write a book and how to sell a book, you know. And do you go right to an editor or publisher or do you get an agent and so forth. And I had some people in the industry that had some good advice for me and they suggested if the book was going to potentially have value outside of some small niche, the best thing to do is get an agent who knows the business. If you, had, if you didn't have a name already. So I did. Got a great one. She still is my agent. So, you know, 15 years, 20 years later. So, uh, that's what I did, and then it took that long to try to write the book proposal. Yeah, you really should write a business plan for a book. Because if somebody's going to publish it, they need to know why. What's unique about the book? Who are you targeting? You know, what's, what's different about it? You know, who's your market? You know, what is it going to look like, et cetera? So that took a year. Then it took a year to write the first draft, and the first draft didn't cut it. It wasn't as good as I knew it needed to be, so I just threw it away. It took the third year to write the second, whole second draft. I just stopped. I mean, I knew what the methodology was, but I wrote the first book like I do a seminar, but a book is a very different medium than a seminar. If I, have you, if I can hold you captive for two days, I'll, I'll get you. But if I have to hold you captive in a book, 
You know, that's very, very different. So uh, that, I, that I learned a lot. I had a great editor who coached me a good bit about how to, how to think about a book as a different medium. So that, 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 uh, that was quite a learning process. And so the third year, my big aha was, wait a minute, write the book in three parts, as opposed to trying to write one big linear thing. So, because there were three things I really wanted to accomplish. One is I wanted to give people the methodology quick and let them see what this whole game is and how the blueprint is an intact, seamless model. And then secondly, I wanted to give them the, the coaching and actually walk them through the coaching process and all of that detail. If I were sitting next to them, here's what I'd have them do blow by blow by blow. That's part two of the book. And then the third thing is I wanted people to catch the, oh, by the way, you know, this is a, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye in terms of both organizations and people to keep stuff out of their head, to be focused on outcomes, be focused on action steps, you know, and to have all that stuff, you know, managed well, the, the, the elevation and transcendence that can potentially happen for people when, when, when they do that. You know, was, so those three things, I was trying to put all that together in one stream and it didn't work. So I said, the big aha was, let me write the book in three parts. So the part one is a quick overview of the model. Part two is the coaching, and part three is the oh, by the way, if you're if you step into this, you know more than more than meets the eye. And in 2015, you revised it. I did. What was the reason behind it? Well, if because by that point, anybody would pick up the book fresh would have a sense that it was a little bit out of date, simply because of some of the languaging. And I, in the first edition, I talked about things like Lotus Notes and Microsoft Outlook and, and the Palm Pilot, because most people weren't aware of how they could use technology to actually implement this methodology. So I wanted to make that more aware, people more aware of that. But that, that sort of dated it. And the revised edition has almost no reference to technology at all, because the technology is changing by the day. There are over 300 apps that have been built purporting to support the GTD process. And there's a new one every week. Because all the geeks just figured out, hey, it, it's just a list manager. I can do a list manager. And they just added bells and whistles to it. But that's all they are. And so that, that, that was part of the reason to, to rewrite that. And also, the first edition was really targeted for the fast track professional. Because in 2001, they were the first people that were getting hit with the tsunami of email and all that stuff. And they also were working in organizations that could afford coaching and training. So that was the target, really, market of who I was talking to about this. And that was where my experience had been in, is in that world and dealing with those people. So the first edition had a bit of that kind of business focus to it and you know, kind of mid to senior level professional focus. I even knew back then, though, that this worked for the clergy, it worked for students, it worked for stay-at-home dads, it worked for... Attorneys, it worked for anybody. So what really what changed is the breadth of the audience changed that I was talking to. So I literally rewrote the whole book. I literally retyped the whole book because I did, would I still say this the same way? A lot of stuff is verbatim in in the first because I said that's really good. I don't I couldn't say it any better than that. Oh, I wrote that. That's good stuff. I ought to do that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so that that was so. But as I was rewriting it, then I thought, here's how I would say that now. So the methodology didn't change at all. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's platinum stuff no matter when and where, and it's timeless. Uh, but, the, but the audience and examples and how much broader. And also, in those 15 years, you know, I also got a little more sophisticated and understanding more of the depth and breadth of this when people really apply it. So I changed a few words, at least in English anyway. I changed collect to capture. Because collect is kind of like just gathering historical old as stuff. As much as you can. And capture has, can, can include a lot of things, like creative ideas about a project or whatever. So capture was a more expansive way to uh, indicate the, that, what the first stage of getting something under control you know, is. And I changed uh, process to clarify. And I changed review to reflect. And I changed do to engage. Because a lot of people thought, oh, do, you know, this is getting more done, I gotta work harder, I gotta sweat more, I gotta, you know. And the truth is, you know, the, the big secret is getting things done is not so much about getting things done, it's about being appropriately engaged with, it, with all the aspects of your life, so you can just be present whatever you're doing. So engage could be take a nap, meditate, do yoga, do nothing. As a matter of fact, how well you do nothing is an indicator of how well you do GTD. It's about being present in the moment as opposed to 
thinking about what's next while you're doing the thing. Yeah, there's kind of a zen of this too that says sometimes thinking about what's next is what you need to do to be present. <clears throat> so sometimes you need to be involved in some of those things so that you are more present. So being present doesn't necessarily mean you know, you're some, in some quiet space. You could be running a four-minute mile or you could be you know, digging a huge ditch or you could be you know, uh, trying to craft the next chapter in the book that you're writing. And so being present simply means that that's what you need to be doing right now as opposed to something else. So you can give it your full attention, but giving it your full attention may look like a lot of things doesn't mean that you have to necessarily be physically quiet. So GTD is something that works for every human being. If they work it. If you, exactly, exactly, if you do what is needed. And in our experience, when we speak about productivity, what we find is that Almost every person will say, yes, I have a to-do list. Yes, I carefully plan my days. Yes, I prioritize. And then when you dig in, you see that they barely scratch the surface of what is possible in terms of creating this creative bandwidth. Now, for everybody listening and watching this interview, what are some of the triggers that people can recognize in their own lives, in their own experience? that show that it's probably a good idea to take some time and sharpen the saw and learn these type of effectiveness behaviors? Well, I think the key element there is how, how important is more space to you? How important, what would you do if you had nothing pulling on your mind? Would you be more creative? Would you be more strategic? Would you be more loving and present? Would you, what? what? If you don't have any, any anything to do with more room, you know, let's get to a no as fast as we can. Let me go find somebody who does. Because yeah. that's what this produces. What you do with that room is quite unique to you. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you over the, all these years, a lot of people use it to be more strategic, see a bigger game on a more consistent day-by-day -day -by -day basis. A lot of people use it to open up their creativity and to be able to paint better, to be able to sing better, to be able to write better music. You know, one of my big champions, a guy named Eben Taubenfeld, who was Avril Levine's guitarist and producer for many years when she first started out, he said before GTD, he started 100 songs a year. After GTD, he finished 100 songs a year. <laughs> you know, so, so how would you use it? So I think that's the, that's the key element. And if you want to get down to the real nitty-gritty, how often do you have the same thought twice without making any progress on what you're thinking about? Huge waste of time. As soon as you say, I need cat food, and as soon as that pops into your head twice, you're inappropriately engaged with your cat. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, that, and, you know, a lot of it just depends on people sort of catch it. If, if you, you, you do need to kind of engage with this stuff to see what it is, because you can understand it intellectually, but you actually have to start writing things down, start making next action decisions, start having a trusted system that you park the stuff into. Once you start to do that, you start to feel a lot more of that presence, a lot more of that freedom and you know, ability to you know, manage your intuitive processes. You know, interesting thing, um, you know, Atul Gawande, if you know his book, The Checklist Manifesto, yeah. fabulous book, brilliant guy. Um, and one of the things he said is checklists, and he's talking a lot about surgeons and in, in, in the medical world, you know, being able to use checklists to save a lot more lives so you don't make mistakes in the operating room. Uh, but he said, the cool thing about a checklist is not only does it make sure that, that you're not missing anything to do excellence in any kind of procedure, but what happens that when you have a checklist that you then trust and you trust you will use, it opens up your consciousness to a lot more creative things about what the work is that you're doing. And I think that's, that's a lot of what the point of this is. It looks kind of mechanical and simple to write all this stuff down, but it's what, the, what happens in terms of more space internally and, and the cool and creative things that are likely to show up, that you have the freedom you know, to, to actually have good ideas. I mean, how long does it take to have a good idea? Zero. It takes no time whatsoever. How long does it take to be strategic? Zero. How long does it take? To, those things don't require time. And yet most people would say having good ideas, being creative, being strategic, and being loving are some of the golden goodies in life, but you don't need any time to do those, but you need room.
And the subtitle is The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. Yeah, which is a lie. <laughs> That's a rather strange combination for most of people yes. I, I like to speak to. So how is it possible? Because people often tell me, but I need stress because it makes me actually more productive. I outperform. How yeah. is this possible? That, that could be true. There's a positive stress and negative stress. A positive stress says, yeah, I want to go, I want to go run that long distance or I want to write a big book. And then you create this huge stress for yourself because you just threw yourself out of your own comfort zone. You know, most of the people most attracted to our work so far happen to be the people that need it the least. They're already the most productive and creative and proactive, aspirational people you'd ever meet. But they just thrown themselves out of their own comfort zone, you know, with their creativity and their productivity. So a lot of GTD is like helping them catch up and have a system that can actually be sustainable with that creativity and that productivity. So you don't get rid of this, you know, as soon as I want to be out of this room, and I'm not out of the room, I've created stress, or cognitive dissonance, they would refer to that. And the way you get out of the room is you go to relieve the pressure. You know, I have a picture that's not true yet, I need to go now go get everything out of my way that doesn't match that picture, so I step into my picture. So that, that stress actually gets you moving. You know, and that's what you know, produces creativity, produces, you know, you'd never grow if you didn't have challenges like that. You just don't want to go, I need to be out of the room. Yeah, but I have to sit here. Oh, damn, I have to get out of the room. Uh, now you're in negative stress because you're not appropriately engaged with what you've just committed to. But appropriate engagement may very well include uh, a lot of tension, if you will. Uh, you create your own tensions, you know, uh, to, to then get you moving and to get you doing that kind of stuff. So, so it's very subtle. Some of those people may be quite accurate. But, hey, I need stress in order to be creative. That could be accurate. But most people kind of wait until the world falls on their head and then they, it forces them to be creative, as opposed to realizing that you could be creative without having to have the world be a crisis. One, one thing that, um, that I keep thinking about is the definition of stress. You know, we have uh, our online program, How to Work Stress-Free. One of the first things we did is look up what is the definition of stress? Does stress mean just feeling pressure? Or is stress when the pressure becomes so much that your performance starts going down? Turns out, as far as we could find, there is no one definition in the world about stress. Yeah, probably for that reason, yeah. yeah. Which makes it really difficult to have these kind of discussions. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm curious, we were here in Netherlands and a couple of years ago when we researched the uh, amount of people that have actually burnout symptoms, which is very you now actual topic here in Europe, it was like one out of seven. Can getting things done help people to climb out of burnout or prevent it? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, the, a lot of people have overcommitted. And from my experience, if, unless you're keeping track of all your commitments, you'll always overcommit. And most of the stress comes from breaking agreements with yourself. So if you understand what are all the agreements you've made with yourself, then you either keep the agreement, uh, cancel the agreement, or renegotiate the agreement. Mm -hmm. right? Then that prevents any broken agreements. That's why people feel better when they write this stuff down, because they go, oh, God, I can't do all that all at once. Yeah, I'm glad you finally came to that conclusion. You know, it's one at a time, and that's either half empty, half full glass, that you're either feeling really good that the one thing you decided to do right now is exactly what you need to do, or you're feeling really crappy about all the other stuff that you're not doing that you might be, should be doing. And that's where a lot of the burnout's coming from, yes. right? Is, is that, that internal, as I say, the world's not burned out. The world's fine. You know, it's just how we are engaged with that. And so a lot of G, what GTD is just makes that a lot more conscious. And then you can decide yourself whether you've committed to too many things or not. That's up to you to make that decision because there's no right number of things to be, you know, have on your list. It's really about managing the constraints. So we have a constraint in terms of time. We have constraints in terms of energy. And so it's almost like the Scrum methodology. You have your product backlog, all the things you would love to do at some point. And then you need to grow into the habit of actually prioritizing, saying yes to the most important things and accepting that the other things may never be done or will be done later, or maybe you can delegate it to someone. Now, key in making this work in your life, also when you want to climb out of burnout, is to grow the habit, the routine of actually working with these lists and writing things down. What have you discovered are the key success factors for
for people to actually integrate these habits into their lives. Yeah. Well, one of them is the weekly review. Once a week, you need to catch up, bring up the rear guard. Because come on, life comes at us too fast to keep it all pristinely organized and structured you know, as it's coming at us. Matter of fact, you want the freedom to just be more spontaneous and follow your intuitive hunches. As I say, you don't have time to think. You need to have already thought. So if you're really doing a thorough weekly review of your external brain and getting all that current, you don't have to think that much about it. If you're not, you're always trying to think about what you ought to be thinking about, how you should be thinking about what you ought to be thinking about, how you ought to be thinking about what you need to be thinking about. Talk about burnout. You know, that'll, turn, that'll turn, turn you to toast in 10 minutes. So most, because most people don't do that and know there, there is some need to see the world from a higher perspective than they're doing rather than too tightly wrapped around the axle, as we say. You know, that, 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 that's why doing a regular review of the externalized versions of your life and keeping it current is, is, is a critical factor for that. And of course, if you're doing it to do a really good weekly review, you have to have captured, clarified, and organized as best you could, you know, to begin with. So the weekly review is not setting up a new system. You need to set up the system and populate it with all your stuff and then keep it going. Because it's very easy to go to a seminar and people be enthused. And, you know, seminar enthusiasm you can measure in minutes once they walk out the door. You know, so, you know, learning how... To, I figured I took 25 years to figure out what I'd figured out and probably the rest of my life about how to get this to stick for people. Because you know, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not. I'm not. I, I sleep as long as I can and, you know, I'm lazy. I'm the laziest guy you ever met. <laughs> No, I'm just giving people information, you know, about how to stay that way. If you want to be, if you want to be lazy and still afford where you live, you know, you might want to try this out. <laughs> For me, the game changer was to realize that it's not only about managing my time and managing all of my tasks and information. It's about making the right decisions. It's about deciding where my priority lays. And most of the time I've been diagnosed with burnout, very deep one, it was a not, not nice thing. And then I had this moment when I got awake and I thought, wow, everything that's my, on my list, it's actually not my decision. Eventually it is, but those were desires of other people and values of other people, projects of other people. So thus getting things done, help also people to somehow learn to say no, define their own priorities and decide actually on how my life is going to look? Sure. Well, as you may know, I, you know I, I basically recognize the six levels of commitments we have with ourselves. Many of them include other people, but they're all with yourself. So there's horizon five, four, three, two, one on the ground level. And those are, those are very different contents at each one of those levels. The top level is purpose, like why are you on the planet? Right. And as well as what's, what's really, really, really important to you. So if, for instance, good health was really, really, really important to you, you wouldn't let yourself get burnout. Right? So those are, that's the top level. But knowing your life purpose, is that going to help you decide which email to write first? Yeah, a little bit. You know, but you probably need to become more operational and say, well, if I were being wildly successful fulfilling my purpose, what's my vision of life and career? What would that look like? Three years, five years, however far out you can see. And once you get that clear, that can help you decide which email to write first or project to let go of or add a, a little bit more. But then you're going to have, the, what are all the things I need to do within the next three to 24 months that are going to make the vision actually happen? And that's where goals and objectives and plans of that sort usually come into play. That's Horizon 3. But in order to be able to go those directions toward that, you need to have a, an enterprise and a, and a body that's healthy and balanced that gets you there. So Horizon 2 would be all the things you need to maintain your health and vitality, your finances, your relationships, your creative expression, your fun factor, your spiritual life, whatever all those things are that matter to you, you don't finish those things. Those are just things to recognize about where you are. And many times that's your priority is to go eat lunch, right? Take care of your body. Or your priority is to go take a nap, you know? So that's that level of game there. And then, then you have all the things you need to finish about all that. That's all the projects you've got. Get tires on your car. The next vacation you've got to handle. Hire the vice president. Research this new mobile phone service that I might want to do. You know, God, uh, you know, handle my teeth. You know, God knows all the, the projects we have, and we've got a lot of those, right? All of those come from all those other levels. Take care of, you know, all those things are really driven by things you need to maintain or directions you want to go in. And then you don't have any, but you still don't have anything to do until you get to the ground level, which is where it all happens. 
that's all the physical, visible activities you engage in. You know, buy nails at the hardware store, talk to your life partner about X, Y, and Z, you know, surf the web to find out which hotel you might want to stay at. Those, that's where the real action takes place. Ideally, those lined up, that the actions you're doing are, fil are finishing projects you're committed to that have come out of the areas you need to maintain because you're wanting to go to the goals you want to achieve and that's going to give you the vision that's then going to be able to fulfill your purpose within your standards. So people say, how do I set priorities? I say, well, which one of those conversations is most lacking for you right now that needs some maturing? Some people shouldn't set goals. They need to clean their toilet. Really, if your day-to-day -day is out of control, don't try to think about higher priority stuff because you're gonna, all you're going to do is frustrate yourself and create more guilt. So that's why a lot of our work starts at the most mundane level because if mundane is out of control, don't try to think about the rest. But once you know how to control the mundane ordinariness of life, you'll know how to graduate that to be able to manage all these other levels much more elegantly. See, GTD doesn't start with where you should be. It starts with where you are. Yeah. Right? Because if you don't give appropriate attention to what has your attention, that'll take more of your attention than it deserves. So if cat food's on your mind, you damn well better write that on a post-it on your fridge, right? So that whoever goes to the store next gets cat food. Duh. And you can practice all the mindfulness you want. If you still need cat food, you damn well better have a pen and paper, you know, while you're sitting down to meditate. Yeah, that, that was actually one of my questions because lots of people, and I know lots of offices, lots of big corporates, they start applying mindfulness and meditation. And I somehow never could place how then once I'm in front of my outlook, in front of my email, how should I mindfully be engaged with every single email? So do you think that mindfulness alone can help people prevent stress and become more productive? Uh, anything like, you know, come on, walking around the block will help. Just focusing on your breathing. You can do that while you do email. That's a key element to meditation. It brings you present because you know, your breathing is present. I learned that in the martial arts. All you got to do is you get hurt, hit really hard, and it really hurts. Just focus on your breathing because it will bring you present, which takes you out of past and future, which is where pain, the experience of pain comes from. Otherwise, it's just a sensation. So there's a lot of stuff that you could do instantly that helps. All that's going to help. But if you still need cat food, I don't care how much you focus on your breathing, you still need cat food, right? Why, why does, what, what, yeah, you could train your attention. I, I am not going to be distracted by the fact that I need cat food. I am going to focus on my loving presence, great. Why don't you just write down cat food so you don't have to deal with that? I'm too lazy to try to train, tra you know, train my attention. So th those things we don't normally learn in school, at least in, in my experience, I didn't learn in school how to organize myself, how to organize the information, how to make my decisions, solve problems, how to interact with people, what to prior prioritize first. Well, I heard that you started a new project and that's GTD for teens. Yeah. What is it about? It's about GTD, just put in language for the millennials and the post-millennials. Basically, it's the same principle, it doesn't change, it's just as complex are just as rigorous as, you know, as, the, as just the Getting Things Done book itself. It's just we're using a lot of examples in that book about, you know, you know, like an executive, we need to empty their briefcase after a conference meeting or after a board meeting, right, and get a, deal with all the business cards and their, the notes they took and whatever. And a nine-year-old needs to empty his or her pack and make sure that mom gets the thing she's supposed to sign for school. Yeah. Same thing. It's the same principle. Right? It's just one of them, would, a nine-year-old would probably relate to better than empty their briefcase. How about empty your pack you know, on a daily or at least weekly basis so it doesn't start becoming a chemistry experiment in there. You know, so that, that's, it's really the same stuff. And see, kids, as kids grow up, and, and I agree, with the, the kids have not been trained for this. You know, at, first of all, you, you could not feed yourself and so someone fed you. And then you couldn't dress yourself and somebody dressed you. Then at some point, you could feed yourself. At some point, you could dress yourself. At some point, somebody had to give you homework and teach you how to do it. At some point, you had to do your own homework. So as you grow up you know, in the life process, you will be taking on more and more things that you then need to handle and, no, and cannot trust that your external world is going to handle it for you. And at least in the U.S. anyway, as soon as you graduate high school, mom disappears as a trusted system. Right? But until then, oftentimes the structure, school, schoolwork, homework, and home, and your parents or authorities figures created structure for you. Once you walk out without any of that, boy, 
very few <laughs> kids haven't been trained. So that was one of the that was one of the motivators for us. And I don't have kids, so I had to wait for two parents who have kids to be co-authors with it because they they raise their kids and one of them is a school teacher in public schools in the US who's been teaching nine and ten and eleven year olds now this process for two or three years and they get it kids get it yeah it's amazing I remember myself being very young when I started to experience stress I didn't know it's stress but that was the first moment when I started to really write down all the things I have to do and why because there was too much in my head so only I'm wondering in school, we are taught to learn a lot by heart, at least where I studied. Is it possible to really retain all of that information? Because to be honest, I do not remember that much from school because I learned everything by heart. I saw zero connections. Is it possible to apply GTD in school systems? Sure, it is. Yeah, the main thing is to get teachers and administrators to understand what GTD is, and then they'll figure out how to get it to the to the student body and the student thing. So we're, you know, that that's probably coming because we have a lot of people in the school system saying, "Oh my God, we need to get this into the school system itself." Uh, but I think the real key is to make sure that the people who are running the school system understand the value of this and the importance of it. You mentioned karate. I was uh, surprised and intrigued when I read that you have black belt in karate. I did, and in my 20s, yeah. I haven't trained in years, but I did, I did do that. And you're also involved in the movement for spiritual inner awareness. Mm -hmm. a spiritual organization I've been involved with for 45 years. The image I had in my mind with David Allen is getting things done, is executive coaching, business, and now suddenly here's this realm of spirituality. How does that fit together and what is the role of spirituality in right now in your everyday life? Well, why wouldn't it fit with everything you're doing? Because spirit is, you know, it's the invisible thing that's, whatever all that stuff is, that's, you know, kind of that still small voice inside of all of us. It, it's there anytime. So I don't isolate that. Oh, there's that life versus my other life. That's just part of life. That's like eating, breathing, you know, whatever. That's just the, the, the nature of what that is. So. Yeah, still, still meditate, still do, uh, still do that. And you know, it's funny because that it's it's you know my work and, and that that organization and that that um, is very ecumenical. So you know, there are people that in that organization I know very closely that are you know practicing uh, Jews, practicing Hindus, practicing uh, Islam's, you know, uh, 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 practicing Catholics, practicing whatever. Because it's it kind of sort of the bigger game, what's the thing we're all involved in, no matter which slice of it you decide you want to play in. So having something that universal was, you know, that was important for me to uncover, because I've been on the search for a long time for things just because of the experiences I'd had internally, and I didn't have a good reference point to know where that came from and how to get more of it. And so it was nice to run across people who knew how to do that. I have still uh, one question on my mind also in relation to business results. So you've spent a lot of time sitting next to executives, helping them get organized, applying the GTD method. Now what have you seen happen to their organizations as a result of them being the captain on the ship, getting organized? Oh, it's it's ranges all over the place. It depends on the person, depends on their role. Uh, anytime anybody starts to implement the GTD process, it affects and improves every intersection that they have, because it 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 means that you're communicating clearly. It means you're keeping track of any agreements that you have with each other, and that so everything kind of moves up the food chain. Even just for every person in every situation that person is in. They'll run better meetings. They'll, they'll help make sure meetings are clearer in terms of why are we in this meeting. They'll make sure they don't end conversations with that guy. We said, what did we just decide? And what's the next step? Is that yours or mine, Alexander? So just building in the lexicon and the vocabulary can affect osmotically uh, you know, their whole ecosystem around them. So obviously, if the person is key, the CEO or the head person or the key, you know, very key and well-respected person in the organization and fairly senior, if they start to do this, it affects a lot of people because they, you know, suddenly they're getting back 
they're, suddenly they're responding to emails within 24 to 48 hours as opposed to it's dying in their in-basket over there. <laughs> you know, a uh, good example, I coached one guy who was, a, he was targeted, tapped to be the next CEO. He'd been brought in from another industry, so he was operating as a COO at the time. And uh, his biggest issue, presenting issue, was his calendar. He was like wall to wall. You know, you couldn't, couldn't even get on a calendar, you know, within the next month or two. It had no, no space whatsoever. Because he was trying to meet a lot of people and trying to do a lot of things, trying to find out what was going on. And the, the big issue there, he had a typical backlog of about 4,000 emails. Because he was dealing with all the immediate emergency ones. But a lot of those emails were from, guess who? His directs that he'd target, he'd task them with doing these major projects, but they needed his input or his okay in order to keep going, you know. And they'd send him an email and get no response. So guess what? They had to get on his calendar, and that was where a whole lot of his calendar came from. Was because the guy wasn't responsive in terms of the communication system, so that people felt like they had to get in his face in order to get anything done. As soon as he and I, I, I don't think I've ever met anybody who made a change that fast that stuck after I coached him for a couple of weeks his average backlog was zero. And you know, he, he said it totally changed his culture because people didn't say, hey, I don't have to now meet with him because the guy's getting back to me, you know, just like that. Moved up the food chain tremendously. So those are, I mean, the examples are legion. A lot of different types of examples of people starting to do these behaviors, but everything improves. You just have an outcome and an action focus, everything's gonna improve. And if you reported to me, Alexander, and you come in and, and I say, hey, Alexander, I've got a, I've got a cool, couple of really cool projects to give you, but I don't want to overwhelm you. Can you show me your project list? Yeah. And if you can't, I don't want you on my team. Yeah. Right? So again, if you, if you start to do these behaviors or an executive or a senior person starts to live this stuff, it, it affects everybody in a lot of different ways. David, where can people find you? Where they can uh, find information about GTD or where they can see you live speaking? Yeah, well, if you walk around Beatrix Park almost every day when Suki and Catherine and I are walking the dog, you might, you might run into me you know, in Amsterdam. Otherwise, gettingthingsdone.com is our website. And we now have certified master trainers really around the world that, we're, that are delivering you know, our seminars, the Getting Things Done seminar, both publicly as well as in-house, and, and coaching people. So we're officially in 60 countries, though not all of those are, have really active uh, stuff yet. A lot of them are just starting up. But that's, like, if you go to our website, you'll see our global partners. You'll see wherever you are in the world, you'll see somebody in that area that's been certified that we work very closely with. So that's a lot of what I'm doing now is, is more, you know, making sure the IP is, is correct and quality control and sort of holding the hand of, of our new partners and our master trainers. And we still certify all of our master trainers and coaches. Um, so that's, you can get to us through the website. And obviously getting things done, it's in 25, 20, 28 languages. So whatever, wherever you are, get a copy of the book. If you don't have it, the new, the new edition of it, that's certainly a way you can find us. I'm on Twitter, GTD guy and dallen45 on instagram awesome awesome yeah I'm, I'm immediately thinking about what will people write on their list because now people don't do gtd yet they may write down gtd or david allen <laughs> what is the best next step for them go to the website and just gettingthingsdone.com and surf around see what may ring your bell and go to wherever you buy books and get getting things done and and it's not hard the book the book sometimes is daunting to people because i put the whole thing in there i didn't hold back i put the whole methodology in there you know top down sideways all over the place because i didn't want to leave anything out because i wanted to give the whole picture uh, but that could be a little daunting to people but you don't have to go do the whole thing you don't have to go read the book just pick it up and browse and see what kind of rings your bell you know about any of that none of this hurts you know, as we say, this is not running with scissors. You know, you, you keep a pen and paper by your bed, you'll sleep better. You know, so anything, any, any of these behaviors, you know, just make a next action decision about something, you know, that's on your mind. You know, that, that watch your conditions improve. Brilliant. Thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure to be here with you in your beautiful apartment. I really, really appreciate it. Yes. I'm sure that all of our listeners will get Tremendous value from this. No, oh, my pleasure. This is fun.
Thank you. We feel blessed that we were able to have this wonderful conversation with David in his beautiful apartment. And what made the interview even more special, maybe you noticed it in the background, <laughs> was David and Catherine's cute, tiny little dog that was sleeping next to us, who was snoring like a full-grown <laughs> 200-pound lumberjack. She is so cute. <laughs> And we still cannot believe that such a tiny dog can produce so much noise. Our conclusion today is that every human being can acquire these simple skills and habits to accomplish much more with much less time, money and energy. David is a living proof. He says he is lazy, yet his methodology has improved millions of lives. This is a huge insight. For anyone who never made an effort to learn to be effective, the sooner you take action, the more you will benefit. You heard it during this interview. To stay in touch with David and start learning how to get things done, go to David's website, gettingthingsdone.com. Also make sure you order his book with the same title. Well, in terms of ROI, it will probably be one of the best investments you will ever make. And we would like to take this opportunity to tell you about our own mission as well. We help stressed managers become influential leaders and soon we'll be giving a free masterclass on how to work stress-free. Make sure you participate together with your colleagues because you heard David, when a leader gets his work under control, everything changes for the better. To stay informed about our How to Work Stress-Free three-part masterclass, make sure you register for our inspiration emails and our free ebook on our website, earnmoreworkless.com. Did you enjoy this interview? Please leave us a comment and show to the world that you like it. We wish you a wonderful day. Now let's go out, get things done and have fun.